hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We've had a very busy week of developments in the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, a bombshell paper was published by Mansugian and colleagues from Bangkok, Thailand, but a very high quality in the first prospective cohort study to be done uh, seeking baseline data and then the intentional detection of myocarditis. You're going to be blown away with the results. In addition, the CDC came out with new relaxed guidance for COVID-19, which has been a long-awaited catch-up to what's been going on with clinical practice, and I think ought to be a strong signal to every employer or entity that is still mandating the COVID-19 vaccines. I think the implications are in the CDC guidance that nothing is different if one's taken a vaccine or not, and then therefore COVID-19 vaccination discrimination or any policy regarding it in the workplace uh, at this point in time uh, should not uh, be into effect. I, I had a wonderful wide-ranging interview with Miss Kim Iverson. It's been the first time I've been on her show. It was so good and well done. I thought I'd play it for you in this first segment of the McCullough Report. It is now well established that the mRNA vaccines cause heart inflammation, particularly amongst teen boys. The question is, at what rate? When health officials admitted the COVID vaccines were the cause of the inflammation, they said it was extremely rare, one in hundreds of thousands. That number was then modified down to one in 50,000, then one in 20,000. Now the CDC claims it's about one in 12,000, but that's based on cases that are actually reported. In places with better, more robust reporting systems like in Hong Kong, the reported rate is closer to 1 in 2,500. Now, a new preprint from researchers in Thailand show the rate might be much, much lower. The study looked at 301 teens between the ages of 13 and 18, studied their hearts before vaccination and after vaccination using echocardiograms, electrocardiograms, and other measurements, and found that three teens in the group developed myocarditis or pericarditis, and an additional four developed subclinical myocarditis. That's seven out of 301. Joining us now to discuss is Dr. Peter McCullough. He is an internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist. He's been on the forefront of the pandemic, bringing us a much needed critique of the response and a healthy dose of skepticism, much of which has turned out to be accurate. Dr. McCullough, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So walk us through this preprint that's coming out of Thailand. This seems to be I mean, 7 out of 301. That rate is 1 in 43 developing some sort of myocarditis, pericarditis, or subclinical. That is massive. You know, one of the first questions I had is, how come Harvard didn't do this study? Or the Mayo Clinic or Duke? Uh, you know, in the biological licensing agreement, the BLA that was issued to Pfizer and then one that was issued to Moderna by the FDA. They said you have to do studies before and after in children because we have to know the baseline. You have to tell us how many people are really developing heart damage. And, uh, you know, it's been more than a year. 
and no institution in the United States attempted to answer that. We've been relying on spontaneous reporting, which is likely a gross underestimate. So this paper by Mansugian and colleagues from uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, in, oh, was this uh, Thailand sorry, or Bangkok? Yeah, sorry, this yeah. was Bangkok. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so this paper by Mansugian and colleagues from Bangkok uh, did the right thing, and they used state-of-the-art technology. They used the Roche uh, high-sensitivity troponin T assay, the blood test we use in the United States. They used uh, GE high-quality ultrasound or echo. Uh, electric cardiograms, and in those who had abnormality, they did cardiac MRI. So they did it every bit as good as we've done in the United States. And we were stunned to find that in this sample where they lost very few to follow up, as you reported, that seven had sustained heart damage. I'm a cardiologist, and I, you know, I know these data very well. Two actually were hospitalized, and they were hospitalized for about four to five days for observation. This was not a casual thing. 29% had cardiovascular symptoms without damage, including, you know, their heart racing, palpitations, and chest pain. The FDA asked the companies for data that's cohort. This is called a prospective cohort study. And here it is. We have to wait from Bangkok, Thailand to get the answer, and it's not good. So explain to us, so four of them had subclinical myocarditis. What is that in compare, what is that uh, in relation to like actual myocarditis or pericarditis? And would a person know they have that? Well, that's it. Subclinical means they don't know they have it. This is very important. Remember, whether or not they had symptoms, they all had baseline ECGs, cardiac troponin, and echocardiography. And then the MRI was additional if they had abnormalities. This subclinical is very, very important. That means American children who are getting the vaccine, some of them have no symptoms, yet they're sustaining heart damage. And what would be the, uh, I mean, what does that mean? Uh, how, what are the symptoms or the, I guess, the long-term um, problems or complications that you would have if you were diagnosed with something like this? Because the vaccines are brand new, we don't have any assurances on long-term safety. So we have to rely on other types of situations. Myocarditis is very rare. Uh, before COVID-19 vaccination, it could happen. Uh, the background rate with parvovirus or uh, Coxsackie virus uh, is about four cases per million uh, per year. And that was established in a paper by uh, Arolio and colleagues from Finland. Our initial CDC estimates, again, because they didn't know the cohort, they estimated 62 cases per, per million. And then a case, uh, a series was published by Scharf and colleagues from Kaiser Permanente, and they had the number up to 500 plus cases per million. And then you gave the other statistics. Now it looks like maybe in, in 100 children, in a typical school, there's going to be children who are damaged. The prognosis here or the implications are unknown, but I can tell you as a cardiologist, heart damage causes scarring. And when there's a scar, that's a setup for an abnormal heart rhythm, and that abnormal heart rhythm can lead to a cardiac arrest. Today, a paper was just published by Flavio Catagiani from Brazil, and he demonstrated that the reason why myocarditis is so important in children is that when there's superimposed adrenaline and noradrenaline, in exercise, it is the trigger for cardiac arrest. And it may explain why we've seen scores of athletes 
die on the field or die during training or other events because it's subclinical myocarditis and then superimposed adrenaline surge. So subclinical myocarditis would be just as risky as actual, or, or maybe not as, but but if somebody's diagnosed with subclinical, because we're hearing this all that we've been hearing this throughout when we found out that the vaccines were causing myocarditis, of course, the response from a lot of people would be, well, it's minor, it, 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 re- it resolves itself over the next few months, or if it's subclinical, then it's really truly minor. How minor is it? I mean, and you're saying it causes scarring, so can it really truly resolve? Well, I can tell you a different mechanism for heart damage would be a heart attack in an adult. So if a heart, if an adult had a heart attack with these types of EKG changes and elevations in troponin, they'd be rushed to the cardiac catheterization laboratory and have angiography and stenting. So I can tell you as a cardiologist, we take this degree of heart damage seriously. There is no heart damage that's mild or inconsequential. And there are papers now by Jenna Schauer showing it doesn't go away. And she has data in children now with serial cardiac MRIs that's not encouraging. As a cardiologist in clinical practice, I have some young people now that have sustained heart damage after vaccination, and when it's now more than a year. And what's interesting is so many other countries are banning vaccines, certain vaccines for younger people. We've seen throughout Europe, Moderna being banned for groups anywhere ranging, depending on the country, under 30 or under 18, or particularly to boys. Now Denmark has completely said, under the age of 18, you won't be able to get vaccinated anymore. That's it. We're done with you guys. Unless you're in a very specific category and the doctor writes you a note saying you must get the vaccine because you are so sick, you know, you're so immunocompromised. Other than that, they're not offering it yet. Uh, you know, we're not seeing that. We're not. We're not seeing. We're still. They're still talking about mandating it for college students uh, in the country. You know how? Even with knowing all of this, it's willful blindness. They are willfully blind to cardiac damage and potentially death in Americans taking the vaccine. Our CDC told us in February that 75% of children had already had COVID. Uh, Now, uh, in in among other populations, uh, those in high school and college, it may be nearly everyone has had COVID-19. In a paper by Kimatelli and colleagues, it's been demonstrated that once someone's had any strain of COVID, they have 97% protection against any serious outcome in the future. And that's even in the oldest and sickest adults. Uh, So I can tell you as a doctor in children, the COVID-19 vaccines are not medically necessary. They're not clinically indicated. The randomized trials show no clinical benefit. There's never been demonstrated a reduction in spread. Some people think that adults are using the children as human shields to try to protect the adults. That hasn't been uh, demonstrated scientifically. It's It's really a diabolical thought. And now on top of that, there are two real-world studies by Dora Bowilla and Fleming Dutra in JAMA demonstrating even when children are vaccinated, it's a complete waste of time. The vaccine efficacy is far less than 50%, and there's no differential in important clinical outcomes. So I think Denmark's got it right. They should withdraw all vaccination for young people. And just to kind of uh, wrap up this uh, particular segment before, before we move on to the CDC and their new guidelines, um, okay, so if you see a, if you see a, a, a youth teenager that ends up developing myocarditis, 
what I, what does their future hold? I mean, my worry for these young men, because this is particularly affecting teenage boys, we know that men, when they hit middle age, are at higher risk of heart attacks. So does this put them at an increased uh, possibility of having a heart attack later in life? Do we even know? The two major risks of having myocarditis in any severity of myocarditis are the development of heart failure later on and actually having a cardiac arrest. And in other forms of a cardiac muscle disease, when more than 15% of the heart is damaged, we actually put in an ICD to uh, prevent sudden cardiac death. So what does it mean for a child? In a paper by Tracy Hogue from UC Davis, uh, well more than 85% of children are hospitalized. So A, the kids are out of school because they're in the hospital with myocarditis. Our CEC VAR system has thousands and thousands of American kids who have been hospitalized with myocarditis. Thousands. And uh, after the hospitalization is survived, if uh, there is reduction in heart pumping function, then we need to use heart failure medications to actually try to prevent the development of heart failure. And I've had to do that in my practice. We treat the inflammation with anti-inflammatory medications, uh, non-steroidal agents, sometimes uh, steroids, and then colchicine. And then there's a lot of testing. The children have to go through serial echocardiography and MRI. They can't play in sports. Uh, we know that there's been some uh, important athletes. Fabian Schrump from uh, Europe, a wonderful marathoner, she announced she has myocarditis and actually had to stop running, and her, her career has been put on hold. So athletes' careers have to be put on hold, and then they have to be monitored carefully over time. And we're on pins and needles that, in fact, they may develop heart failure or have a cardiac arrest. I'm concerned that so many high-level athletes who compete at such a high level and have high-dollar contracts, they actually may not mention any heart pain. They may not mention any discomfort and try to play through this. And we have seen now over a 1,000 European athletes with cardiac arrest on the field in Europe, typically soccer, rugby, or other sports, where they've strictly mandated the vaccines. Wow. Um, all right, let's talk about the CDC guidelines. So they announced, you know, I saw this all over the breaking news, the C CDC updates their guidelines. And I was thinking they were going to finally drop the vaccine mandates for people coming into the United States. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, okay, they're going to let Novak Djokovic play in the U.S. Open, right? They're going to uh, open up the borders for unvaccinated Europeans. Unvaccinated Americans could go to Europe. Unvaccinated Europeans cannot come to America. But no, that's not what the guideline was. Um, they instead they, they announced and on their website they have CDC streamlines COVID-19 guidance to help the public better protect themselves and understand their risks. So tell us, what did they change today? The CDC actually uh, did what I consider kind of a cleanup of some legacy recommendations that they had in the past that basically no one was following. Uh, they had some recommendations that if you were exposed to somebody with COVID at work, you were supposed to go home and quarantine yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you, people haven't done that for months, if not over a year. Uh, people got sick at work, they go home. The other workers stay there. People weren't quarantining based on contact, but the CDC got that out of there. The CDC did something else that we had already started to do in clinical practice, is that they standardized the quarantine period for five days. Now, they originally had it for five days for uh, test positive but no symptoms, we were applying it for those who are sick. 
And the CDAC, I think, very practically says, listen, a five-day period is reasonable, and if there's no fever after that, you can just simply uh, come back to work and don't worry about it. I think the most important thing that the CDC said was actually uh, something that is going to hopefully stop some activities. The CDC finally came out. Uh, previously, they had been neutral or mentioned a few applications, but here they came out and they said, stop asymptomatic testing. This is important. Stop it. There are still people at work who are tortured by getting a nasal test once a week, even if they don't have symptoms. There still are people trying to take plane trips uh, to Hawaii or elsewhere where some airlines make them take a test. It's got to stop. Asymptomatic testing was never cleared by the U.S. FDA. The WHO st said stop doing it in June 25th of 2021. Now, more than a year later, finally, the CDC comes around and says, stop asymptomatic testing. Multiple papers have been published. Asymptomatic testing has a yield of less than 1%. And when the test is positive, it's most likely to be false positive. So all these people traveling who have had to take tests, all they have done is basically screwed up their travel itinerary and put their trips at risk and wasted a lot of people's time and money. I think CDC ought to issue an apology for allowing that to go on for so long. I doubt that's going to happen. But uh, it does sound like from these new updated guidelines, and I just find it kind of funny that they say, you know, to better protect themselves and understand the risks when really what they were doing uh, they were they were just saying, okay, we, we reverse, we reverse everything. We're not, you know, don't test anymore. You don't need a quarantine unless you're the one who actually has COVID. And if you got COVID, you only stay home for five days. Right. That sounds more to me like we're learning to live with it, which is something they should have done probably early on. Say, we've got to figure out a way to live with this virus in a way that protects the most vulnerable and allows the rest of the population to go about their lives. And it sounds like they're finally coming around with that recommendation. I would agree with that, but to be fair to the CDC, the virus has mutated. It's become a far more mild syndrome. Most people have already been through it, so second infections are very mild. It's a much shorter syndrome clinically. You know, I've managed patients all the way through the illness, and I've had patients in the Delta wave, for instance, actually be sick for more than a month, truly be sick. Now with the Omicron variant, I've had people actually completely get better in under three days. So it's, it is, uh, it's a totally different syndrome. We've learned how to treat it so they get better in under three days with combination early therapy. And I think, uh, I think most important, we've gone from a mindset of COVID zero, getting to zero cases, just as you've said, to what I call COVID inevitable. It's inevitable. We're all going to get it. It's just like the Spanish flu. It's going to sweep through the country, and let's hope we're on the back end of this. Well, that was Kim Iverson on the Kim Iverson Show. The, I join her. I'll tell you, she's a terrific journalist. First time I've been on with her, and so I'd encourage you to check out her station. And uh, she's really seeking the truth. Wonderful, wide-ranging interview. I think that gets you up to date on a lot of the developments that's happened uh, this week. We... Um, are short on time, and I'm not going to be able to have a music segment this week, but I have a wonderful guest on the backside for the long program, Dr. Jean-Francois Legard, and he shortened his name to Jeff Legard. Uh, he is a PhD uh, cellular and molecular biologist in Marseille, France. He's at the top of his game, 
and we go over from the very beginning the pathogenicity and the inflammatory nature of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and why it's so dangerous, how it interrelates to the ACE2 receptor. So get ready. It's some high science on the backside of the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cell's pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the povidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. 
the Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. You know, in our pursuit of understanding uh, in depth SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 syndrome, uh, I've brought to our American audience and our worldwide audience experts from all over the world. Uh, Today's interview is no different, but for the first time I'm asking uh, to appear on the show, Dr. Jean-Francois Legard. Dr. Legard is a a PhD, received his PhD in cellular molecular physiology. He's had extensive training uh, in the U.S., in Canada, uh, both in chronic diseases, and he really has moved into uh, acute disease, specifically SARS-CoV-2, and the genetic code for the COVID-19 vaccines, that code for the spike protein. And he's uh, generated a tremendous amount of scholarship regarding the spike protein. So I really want to focus this interview on the spike protein and and welcome Jean-Francois. In fact, I can call him Jeff, uh, which is great. Uh, Welcome to the show, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. Well, let's let's start off on this. Uh, Why don't you explain to the audience how you got interested in this uh, and and what's the lead up to your scholarship on the spike protein? Uh, In fact, uh, I've been working uh, um, uh, since 20 years in uh, nutrition and, and health, and uh, I have a formation of chemistry and biochemistry, and I'm specialized in uh, oxidative stress and inflammation uh, reaction. So I'm also interested in uh, in virus and uh, this kind of, of uh, disease, but uh, uh, very quickly, I've seen that uh, the COVID was, uh, was an inflam- inflammatory disease. I think the, the virus is only the uh, start the reaction, but um, it's not the virus that kills. The virus uh, make uh, a disorder in uh, immunity, and after if it uh, it uh, triggers inflammation, and at the end it's inflammation that kills. So I thought that uh, uh, it was interesting to work on this because uh, it's not really uh, viral and antiviral things which are in- important. But it's really the, the, to regulate the, the, the immunity and the inflammation, which is very, very, uh, very key in uh, for curing COVID, and also in the in the on the on the vaccine uh, problems. Everything is about uh, immunoinflammation. So that's why I get interested and started to work, like many people, to protect my family. And because I'm a scientist, so I was interested. And after I go more deeply in this, and since to years so so do you think there's been uh an excessive amount of, of attention on the virus itself and not enough to attention on inflammation exactly uh and mainly also many people have been talking viral biologists and not enough uh, cardiologists or specialists of immuno of immunity inflammation etc and also 
more than this, all the therapies are like remdesivir, everything are only, uh, they only target the, the antiviral aspect and you cannot really stop the, the development of the virus because it's very special, uh, especially for some genetic things. You know, for example, the forensite, it's very hard because he has a quick development in the body once he's inside. And after, it's more important to block the, to regulate immunity and to block inflammation. So uh, I think we are wrong. Uh, many people are wrong about the, the therapies because many things like monopiravir, all the, the therapies are only focused on antiviral and they should be much more on uh, uh, block inflammation. And I think we can do it better than dexamethasone, for example. Uh, so the people, are, the researchers are not focused enough on the inflammatory pathways, which are more important than only blocking the, the replication of the virus, which is very complicated. So Jeff, you probably recently saw, I, you know, I know you're over in Marseille, but it, it had to be obvious that our NIH National Allergy and Immunology Infectious Disease Branch yeah. Director, Anthony Fauci, and uh, President Biden both contracted COVID after taking, you know, four COVID-19 vaccine injections, and they were both treated with um, Paxlovid monotherapy. Paxlovid uh, in the United States is a combination of nermotrelvir, a novel chemist like three inhibitor and ritonavir, just an older protease inhibitor. But there was no mention of any treatment for inflammation or coagulation. And I think as, as everybody may know, they basically suffered rebound. They ended up having a prolonged illness uh, and they were more infectious for a longer period of time. What's your commentary on that? Uh, I've seen a lot about remdesivir or other products, molnupiravir, et cetera. But on Paxlovid, I'm not uh, have heard about this, but uh, after a while, I really uh, kind of uh, get less interest in the antiviral things. I was more, uh, uh, I mean, uh, interested in the fact that the, uh, this vaccine doesn't work. And I've seen that many people who have taken uh, two or three uh, vaccine shots, even the, the, the booster, uh, they are not protected. And uh, uh, even uh, sometimes even worse with the, the antibody dependent enhancement, which can happen because the, we are now, we have some variants which are very uh, different from the the the, the SARS-CoV-2 from the beginning. So we are doing uh, with the vaccine some antibodies which are not killing the, the virus, but which are helping the virus to to uh, to divide uh, in in the body and to uh, so yeah. So Jeff, you, uh, there was a paper by Hakim and colleagues that described with the respiratory illness infection, you know, at least uh, 15 different epitopes or 15 different proteins that elicit antibody response. And there's probably many, many more, but, you know, including the spike protein at multiple uh, locations, the nucleocapsid, the envelope protein, um, et cetera. With your knowledge, what is it about SARS-CoV-2 infection that's so inflammatory, that's just so unusual compared to other viral infections? Mm -hmm. I think there are several uh, uh, inflammatory pathways which are not enough discussed and they are really important. 
And the fact is that uh, everything is linked to the receptor of the virus, ACE2 and uh, angiotensin covertin. Uh, so it's uh, the, the, the entry, the, the protein which is the entry of the virus is very important for the body because it has very positive uh, uh, importance normally. So when it's blocked by the virus, uh, it's blocked this, all these positive uh, effects and also it's, it implicates many inflammatory diseases. It's really a key protein. It's not, uh, I mean, I would say we are unlucky or, or we could say worse, it's a very bad uh, uh, target uh, for the body. And uh, it implies various, uh, um, it's it, uh, started various uh, inflammatory pathways, which one was the first is the, the renin angiotensin uh, pathway, which is uh, then becoming very inflammatory because ACE2 is very good uh, and is in balance with another uh, protein, which is ACE. And when they are not balanced, uh, then it's, we, are, we get uh, we got a lot of inflammation. And also it activates some other case uh, inflammatory pathway, which are called bradykinin uh, pathway. Uh, can go cannot go so easily in the in, in the details, but the I think the bradykinin pathway and also the the complement pathway, which are activated by uh, the reaction of the, the virus with the, this receptor, uh, are really key. And so there are like three or four inflammatory pathways which are uh, implic implicated by the the link between the virus and the the, the receptor of the virus. And the problem is that the vaccine. Uh, the spike protein of the vaccine is uh, also liberated in the blood. It's also free after uh, uh, very quickly in the body and in many organs, con in the country of what say the Pfizer and, and Moderna. So it's like the, the, the vaccine is like a concentrated uh, COVID, which is going everywhere in the body and reacting with this ACE2 receptor, which are everywhere in many uh, fluids, in every organs, even in the brain, and it can pass the, the barrier between the, the, to the vessel in the brain and all the brain. So that's the problem. Uh, the, the vaccine are like a concentrated uh, COVID, which can make inflammation all over uh, the body with, the, with this pathway, which are called lectin complement pathway, the bradykinin pathway, the, the renin angiotensin pathway, and, uh, because um, it's weird that uh, this uh, virus reacts on uh, uh, so important uh, receptor, and after uh, there could be a discussion about the origin of the virus. Is it natural? Or many papers show that uh, um, um, some of these virus have been directed to this uh, receptor and. Uh, uh, anyway, that makes it very inflammatory and everybody should focus more on inflammation that's blocking the replication of the virus, which is very complicated, even if I'm like over like defending the uh, ivermectin, some other antiviral, but you, you, if you only try to get antiviral, you, you don't uh, cure COVID. You need to be antiviral a bit, but you need to be anti-inflammatory uh, especially. So it's the targeting of the receptor binding domain of the S1 segment of the spike protein for the ACE2 receptor that in your mind is really the, the key thing. It's a tip off for inflammation, but also 
as you implied, the ACE2 receptor, in a sense, is a good guy, uh, that that's actually a pretty favorable protein. And, yeah. and the interaction there is damaging to ACE2, right? So when the, the receptor binding domain locks in with ACE2, it's either deactivating or even potentially scheduling that protein for destruction. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. AC2 uh, at the end is good because it's uh, once again it's balanced with uh, another enzyme ACE, which produces uh, angiotensin 2, which is inflammatory, and it has to be balanced by ACE2. So at the beginning, many people was thinking that we have to. It's good that if, if we have low ACE2 because it's the the receptor of the virus, but at the end, ACE2. Um, has to be uh, regulated and has to be upregulated also because uh, it's very important uh, to fight inflammation. And uh, as I said, anyway, the, the virus inside, when it's in the body, it's very hard to, to block the, the replication, but you can block the, 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 the inflammation. And I forgot something at the beginning on the vaccine where we're just discussing about the, the efficacy and et cetera. And the, uh, one of the main problems of the, this vaccine is uh, on its efficacy is that to be efficient and to protect the lungs and the upper airways, you have to, to make some uh, immunoglobulin A and secretory immunoglobulin A. That means uh, immunoglobulin A, which are done by the, by the upper airways, by the lungs, etc., because they are the ones that can really protect your lungs. And with this uh, vaccine, you especially do some... IgJ, some immunoglobulin J, which are circulating in the blood, but they're not enough uh, protecting uh, the, the, the lungs and the target. So uh, we make some immunoglobulin with this vaccine, but they are not useful because uh, what is uh, useful is called secretory immunoglobulin A, which are immunoglobulin A that would be done by the at the uh, at the level of the uh, of the cells of the of the lungs, etc. And actually, uh, I don't see that the research on uh, on SARS and coronavirus that um, no researcher was able to make a great a good vaccine since twenty years. So we were the, the research and I guess Pfizer and Moderna were aware that this vaccine wouldn't work. So we can discuss about the toxicity, but also on the efficacy, we kind of knew that uh, we if we were honest, that we didn't have a lot of luck that it works. So that's for me a big problem also. You know, Jeff, I recently talked to um, an academic dentist mm -hmm. who let me know that, you know, there are some other interesting vaccine ideas, uh, including actually using relatively benign uh, nasopharyngeal um, bacteria, but, but manipulating the bacteria so they express the spike protein um, but, you know, the spike protein can't do anything and the bacteria basically aren't able to replicate, they die. But it's a way of exposing the nasopharynx directly with spike protein uh, through a nasal mist. And, and I've always thought that, uh, that I've interviewed on the show Hamid Merchant, who's a vaccine developer in the UK. And he said, listen, if they would have went with some type of uh, antigenic exposure in the nasopharynx, that would have had half a chance of inducing IgA and T cells and natural killer cells in the nasopharyngeal mucosa. Whereas an intradermal injection, it's hopeless in terms yeah. of- the intradermal, intramuscular, it's, it's staying there and after it's going to the blood, it's, it's useless. But also on your point, because I understood uh, 
I have here even the, the Professor Del Fresi uh, talking about here, about this here, he's the responsible of the scientific uh, council, I mean, advice uh, of the president here. And uh, he has talked about this. It's, it's like a good idea because it's uh, closer on the, on the respiratory uh, airways and on the lungs. But in the facts, it's never really worked. And uh, so I have friends which are better than me in immunity, and they say it never really worked. They have tried for the fluke, and it uh, didn't work. So it's, a, it's like a, a good idea because it's uh, better than in the muscle uh, to, to make an aerosol in the nose, for example. But it didn't really work. And also, you can also think that the, 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 the big problem of the toxicity of the spike proteins in the nose where there are a lot also the, the vessels are not uh, far also from the nose uh, mucosis. You can have also some, uh, um, some toxicity of the spike, which goes towards the brain. Uh, already in the muscle, we see that uh, the RNA and the spike travel everywhere in the body until also uh, the brain. It's written in Moderna and in the and in the agency of the medical, uh, the medical agency in Europe, they are written also this that uh, we, we find some uh, RNA and spike a, a bit in the plasma and in the blood, in, in the brain. So um, it's already uh, bad like this. So if you put it in the, in the nose, you can have also some uh, nervous reaction, which would, would not be good also. Uh, the problem is that uh, this spike protein is so inflammatory that. You have to take very to take care about where you, you put it, uh, and when we see the damage that it makes uh, when you put it in the in the muscle, I think in the brain, I mean in the in by the nose, we could have also maybe some bigger toxic uh, issues. So it's maybe a good idea, but it doesn't work so much. My my friends of immunity have told me, and uh, there is a problem of toxicity also. Uh, in the nose, in the in the airways, so if you send directly spike there. So Jeff, and um, the, the the whole realization that spike protein has been found in the human brain after vaccination. My yeah. okay. and colleagues have found spike protein in the human heart after vaccination. In fact, it's found everywhere in the body. Yeah. I mean, what are the implications here? Um, based on what you know, um, uh, how can the spike protein in the brain ever be benign or in the heart ever be benign? Everything we know about the spike protein, it seems like it's very pro-inflammatory. It's attracting inflammation, but is the spike protein itself doing damage as it seeks the ACE2 receptor? Yeah, I think it's through uh, the link with ACE2 uh... A receptor that's uh, induce all the inflammation pathway I said, but in the brain, for example, it's very uh, preoccupating because it's passing the the um, hematoencephalic membrane. That's mean uh, between the the blood and the vessel and and the and the whole brain. So it has been found some spike have been found for COVID people and for vaccine people in the, all the region of the brain, including the hypothalamus, the hypophyse, which are linked to many, uh, uh, many, many things in the body. So, and I think all, we have seen some kind of uh, people having some close to Crossrail-Jacob uh, disease. And maybe we, we think that it's uh, like a global inflammation in the brain, which are not Crossrail-Jacob uh, necessarily, but we like a, a big inflammation in the, in the, in the brain that's, uh, 
can make at least some uh, nervous problem and uh, at worst, uh, even like coma or things which looks like to Crossroad Jacob. And uh, in the heart also, it's very bad because uh, we see we, I think the myocarditis, the thrombosis, the stroke, uh, uh, everything are, are linked to, uh, to this inflammation. And the problem is that is ACA2 receptor, they are present in all the body in uh, quasi all the, the organs, all the, the fluids. So that's why depending on your genetic, of your uh, personal uh, default, we are, nobody's perfect. So it will, uh, it will attack uh, an organ or another depending on your, of your default. And for sure, but it's not uh, everybody which is ill for, um, because of COVID or because of, of, the, of the vaccine, we have all different uh, sensibility. But I think for everybody, it's, go, it's doing uh, inflammation. So that's why uh, sometimes we are treated of complotis. So we are saying that vaccines are not good, but we have never said that the COVID is a, a little flu or, every, or something. We have um, tried to, to cure COVID since the beginning. We are interested also in long COVID. I think when people are not treated by whatever treatment, ivermectin or acetromycin, etc., I think uh, you have more chance after to have a long COVID because you let this inflammation go in the body. And as we see the, the, the works of Dr. Malone and our teams, uh, contrary to what said Moderna, uh, the mRNA and especially the spike can be found two months after uh, uh, the, the, the vaccine shots. And also with COVID, it can remain. So if you make, for example, for vaccine, several shots, then you don't have uh, like an acute inflammation, you get uh, a chronic inflammation uh, if you don't cure COVID or if you do some several shots without uh, taking care of uh, following your inflammation, uh, uh, um, I don't know, CRP, etc. Um, you, you have to check your inflammation level because it can, it can become chronic. And I think uh, it's this chronicity that's make the, all the, the disease we see for long COVID and also for, for vaccination. So far, we've been talking about either messenger RNA vaccines or adenoviral DNA vaccines, where there's just no control over uptake of the genetic material, uh, how much spike protein is made, where it's made, and for what duration of time it's made. Uh, yeah. Let's switch gears and talk about Novavax and Corbivax vaccines, which are the antigen-based vaccines, where at least the amount of spike protein, the quantity is known. Uh, what's your viewpoint there? Do they have the, they pose the same mechanistic risks as the genetic vaccines? Uh, for me, at the beginning, I thought uh, yes, because uh, the problem of the mRNA vaccine and DNA vaccine is that they are doing uh, uh, the spike protein uh, in an uncontrolled manner uh, everywhere, and this is a problem. And uh, also with the doses of Moderna, which is three times the doses of, of, uh, of Pfizer, you, you see sometimes more problem. And so it's really uncontrolled, contrary to what, to what they say, that it would be very nice and only on the on the uh, exterior of some cells. In fact, it's, uh, there are some spike protein which can be found in the, in the circulation, etc. So it's not controlled as they said. But so at the beginning, I think like you and many people, I think uh, that uh, uh, the naturated vaccine with a control um, dose of, of, uh, of vaccine would be better because at least uh, we know the dose like common vaccine 
you put a deactivated vaccine and you know the dose, so it's really uh, less spike which is uh, sent or produced in the body. But I've seen there are also some problems, so I'm not studied very really deeply this. But anyway, I think uh, that spike is very toxic. So it's something which shouldn't uh, be sent in the body. And uh, it has been a bit shown that even if, if we think it's deactivated in this vaccine, like Novavax, it seems that it can maybe react also with ACE2. And uh, I think regarding the efficacy, which is very low, like I said, because it doesn't make some immunoglobin A, and the fact that a spike is so uh, inflammatory, uh, I don't really see the interest. And, uh, but I mean, potentially, I, I, I think that this vaccine uh, may be less uh, toxic than the mRNA vaccine. But uh, I think we don't know enough now. And personally, I don't know enough now on this. But uh, I would prefer this vaccine to, to the mRNA vaccine. We, which I think we we need uh, 20 years more to to be ready uh, already on the mRNA uh, technology, and also you you cannot uh, produce uncontrolly uh, this spike protein, which is known to be toxic since 20 years. I mean, it's really known. So uh, I'm surprised that we have tried this on the whole humanity with a protein which is very known to. To be so inflammatory and to act on the receptor once again ac2 which is linked to a renin angiotensin uh, system that drives the the inflammation in the body but also the regulates the the tension the, and uh, i mean um, yeah the pressure in the blood so so many important uh, targets that uh, i am amazed that we have uh, that the way we send some some spike protein uh, voluntary in the body what is it about the spike protein that causes a coagulation to the extent it does? <laughs> on, the, on the spike protein, I think there was a, a lot of, of change with time. On the, we don't know if it's natural or, or laboratory, but the first thing before this, I wanted to say that it's a, uh, in comparison to the first spike protein, uh, it has evolved. And uh, there's something which is called the furin site, which make which has been changed and, and which make this uh, this SARS-CoV unique in the 3,000 uh, uh, SARS-CoV we know, and which make it very very uh, replicable. So it's very hard when when it's a body to to block the replication. It's something very important. Then on the coagulation, I think. Uh, um, so inflammation spike is very inflammatory, but especially on uh, coagulation is the, the S, uh, the spike, so and the N protein also, which bind the, the, the RNA. They are activating a, a system which is called uh, MASP, uh, mass protein. And this, um, there is a, like a complex which goes directly on, the, which recognize the virus. And it's called it's called MASP uh, MASP two and MASP one and activated uh, what is called uh, the complement pathway. It's uh, immunoinflammatory uh, uh, pathway, which uh, which uh, ultimately lead to a coagulation and activation of thrombin. And uh, it is very known and documented documented that uh, the the lectin uh, so com the lectin complement pathway. 
uh, which um, which is induced by the, this reaction of this mass complex, which goes directly, recognize the S and the N uh, protein, uh, activate uh, some process that lead to coagulation. So there is both inflammation and coagulation, which are induced by S and N proteins. So it's like a inflammatory and coagulatory uh, uh, bomb. So, so Jeff, I want to ask you in the last few minutes. Uh, we're awaiting. Uh, the release of new vaccines this fall that will be uh, considered multivalent vaccines. So there'll be some genetic code for the original wild type spike protein and then some for, uh, you know, in the Omicron uh, variant spike protein. And uh, these, these were approved and will be approved just by the basis of antibodies. So mm -hmm. it raises the issue of are antibodies an adequate surrogate to ensure any type of clinical efficacy? But first, we, we, if we, if I understand, so the new vaccine, we will, they will mix the, the first uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, um, origin uh, and also the, the Omicron uh, variant, that's it. And I think uh, the same, there is a same problem that it's not going to make the, the good uh, immunoglobulin A uh, secretory, which are made by the, by the airways. But uh, we, we could think it's interesting because the, if you put a bit of Omicron, then we are, you are closer of the, of the actual uh, COVID. So you, are, you have less chance to make uh, what is called antibody-dependent enhancement, which are antibodies that recognize the virus, but they are not neutralizing the virus. They are helping the virus to divide because they are not um, uh, um, efficient because they are too distant from the actual virus. So with Omicron, uh, uh, with Omicron vaccine, maybe it could be better than the original uh, 2020 vaccine uh, on the paper. So, but uh, since we don't do the IJA uh, secretary, which I uh, important. And once again, it's, I think it's by your vision, you know better than me. I think it's rarely done or it's not, never been done to, to, uh, to mix some vaccine of different uh, uh, kind like this and to accept this uh, so quickly without doing some tests. The problem is that we are going so fast all the time. We are just trying and after we sent it on, on thousands, uh, I mean, on millions of, of people. Uh, I would have liked to talk about the, the pregnant women, which have been tested. Normally, you test uh, on pregnant women ten years after the vaccine is born, and then we are we are making some experiments on the on the pregnant women. So all these things should have been studied before in research, and not uh, try, um, trying like this on uh, a million of people. So I am so I have some problem about the efficacy and the toxicity of this because. I think we don't have enough distance. Well, you know, you make a great point. We've had a ton of SARS-CoV-2 infections. There's been plenty of opportunities for more randomized trials. There haven't been a single randomized trial yeah. with hospitalization and death as a primary endpoint, not even a signal of that as secondary or tertiary endpoints. Uh, yeah. Jeff, we're going to have to leave it here because we're coming towards the end of the interview. We've been talking with Jean-Francois Lagarde from... Marseille, France. He's a PhD, uh, a cellular, uh, you know, immunologist, uh, molecular biologist. Uh, Jeff, do you have any final words for our audience? 
I don't know. There are so many things to say. Um, I think uh, it's. I'm really what I'm saying is based on science, and I've worked on hundreds of hours with friends on this. And uh, I would have liked that uh, um, a good vaccine, which would, would not be toxic, would have been done. It could have been a, a tool, but uh, I think it's very. It's not working. So. Uh, anyway, if people want to use it, it's okay. But uh, I don't like the idea that it's uh, become mandatory, and uh, because we know we see that it doesn't block the epidemic clearly. And uh, so I think the solution is really we have to go back to to the therapies. And I think uh, the doctors in the on the field they know that azithromycin plus zinc uh, is working, ivermectin is working, and uh, dexamethasone is working. And there's other things which are working and. Once again, it's not only because they are antiviral, it's because they are anti-inflammatory. And dexamethasone is a good thing, but I think uh, we should uh, all focus the researcher on blocking uh, the special pathways or induced by, um, by the S-protein uh, to cure COVID, to cure the long COVID, and even to cure the, the effects that we see on the vaccine because it's the same pathway that are activated. So we the same thing, and we have also some good ideas on this. Uh, it's all the same process, uh, which is concentrated in the vaccine. So we have to target the inflammation more than the than the antiviral uh, activity, I think. Well, wow, that's been a great summary. Uh, Jean-Francois Lagarde, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Yeah, thanks a lot. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.